Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate... World Footprints Radio. Join us as we share legacies of positive footprints with Robert Mazur, an undercover operative who infiltrated and brought down Pablo Escobar's drug cartel, and Ronnie Hung, a human trafficking survivor and leading advocate in the fight against modern slavery. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to World Footprints, the leading voice in socially responsible travel and lifestyle. We're your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and today we're going to share the legacies of two individuals who have put themselves on the front lines in the fight against the crimes of drug and human trafficking. Thanks to Robert Mazur's best-selling book, The Infiltrator, details a nail-biting account of his life as an undercover agent inside Pablo Escobar's drug cartel. His story is set for the big screen, and his real-life dramas are adventures that James Bond could only dream of. Being a part of the underworld, it wasn't unusual for any of us to uh, <laughs> to go to a payphone in the middle of the night. Usually it's because you're trying to avoid detection by law enforcement. In my case, it was the reverse. I was trying to avoid detection by uh, the bad guys. As World Footprints continues its reporting in human trafficking, we'll introduce you to Ronnie Hong, a survivor of human trafficking and co-founder of the Trani Foundation, an organization built from Ronnie and her husband's experience in the dark world of human trafficking. Many victims, uh, their lives are stolen. We, we, we know today through research that their identity is the first thing that is taken from them. And in my case, they, they did take my identity, but they left me with my first name, Ronnie. This is World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Visit us and connect with us at worldfootprints.com. Robert Mazur served 27 years as a federal special agent for the IRS, the Customs Service, and the Drug Enforcement Administration. Five of those years were spent undercover as Bob Musella, a high-rolling mob-connected big shot who infiltrated the criminal hierarchy of Colombia's drug cartels. His undercover stings proved critical in the conviction of General Manuel Noriega and helped cripple an international multi-billion dollar money laundering outfit that served drug lords like Pablo Escobar. His new book, The Infiltrator, provides vivid and nail-biting details about his undercover life in the criminal underworld and the events that led to a $500,000 contract being placed on his head. Bob, welcome. Thank you very much for the invitation. Your book reads like a Hollywood script, but this played out in real life. It's it's hard for somebody like me to grasp. Yeah, it's uh, totally a true story. Um, it was, uh, in hindsight, I guess it was kind of a uh, uh, an unusual ride, a roller coaster ride, and and, and it's it's certainly a, a tremendous challenge for anyone um, to maintain. Um, Two lives during you know for over, over a long period of time over many years and and I was very very fortunate to have a tremendous amount of uh, support and training uh, from those who were um, involved in the agencies that I worked for. Um, I think absent that training, um, this could have been a much more difficult and, and possibly uh, um, even a, a not such a good outcome because I've seen, unfortunately, many times when long-term undercover agents um, aren't adequately prepared mm-hmm. uh, for the uh, physical and psychological impacts of, of living a double life for, uh, for an extended period of time. Well, how does your family prepare? Because, you know, I'm trying to understand... Um, how it was how you were able or both you and your wife and your family uh your children were able to balance between the dangerous life you led on one hand and family life i have to admit that it was a very close call that we we didn't get through it 
um, whole uh, as a family, but thanks to uh, that training I mentioned, I think that that, that really made the difference. I, um, after volunteering for this type of work, uh, went through undercover schools that included uh, schools that were run by experienced undercover agents. Um, among my mentors was uh, Joe Pistone, the individual that the book Donnie Brasco and the movie Donnie Brasco was based upon. And, and there were professional trainers as well as psychologists who were involved in administering the school to evaluate the psychological um, profile of those who volunteered for this type of work. Not everybody who went through the schools ultimately was certified to do that type of work, uh, but then the, the, the psychologists remain involved in the operations um, from the standpoint of making sure uh, that you stay grounded um, and, and that uh, there isn't anything unusual that's uh, developing in the way of a psychological situation for you as you go through the assignment. Among the things that they look for, though, beyond you as an operative, um, is the environment of your spouse. Um, We had not just been moved from one city to another, and and my wife was not in a situation where she uh, was lacking support. She was uh, my parents and my brother and his family and other relatives lived in that town, um, and they gave her a lot of very valuable support during that time frame, but another important factor is that she is a she's a professional herself. She's an educator. She was a first grade teacher. My my children are very involved in gymnastics and other things, and and so they they had a life of their own to carry out. Um, and I tried my very best to um, to keep her informed. I mean, there were times when there might have been a week or more at a time when I couldn't have contacted her but for the most part I made a concerted effort at least every other night to to make my way in the early morning hours to a payphone where I could call her and um, and and talk for a while all of that made for uh, an easier ride uh, for me uh, to be able to get through this and for my family to be able to get through it. And you, you never uh, worried about being found out, about having your cover blown when you're going out in the early morning to uh, a payphone um, to make these calls. You weren't tailed or, I mean, how did you protect your cover uh, during those times as well? Yeah, well, I, being a part of the underworld, it wasn't unusual for any of us to uh, to go to a payphone in the middle of the night. Usually it's because you're trying to avoid detection by law enforcement. In my case, it was the reverse. I was trying to avoid detection by uh, the bad guys. But, uh, you know, when I would come home, and, and, you know, I might be gone for a month and then come home for a couple of days, um, I, I, it probably took you know a half a day for me to uh to get myself back and to make sure that um at least in my mind I did everything that I possibly could to make sure that uh, my tail was clean and and uh, that I got home without compromising my my identity I had enough uh, challenges uh, put before me by the uh, by the people I was dealing with, the criminals I was dealing with, challenging my my bona fides. Uh, I didn't need to be creating unnecessary problems by not being very careful about my movements. Mm-hmm. Now, um, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, five of the years that you were a special agent were spent undercover in uh, this major sting, uh, this major operation that involved drug leaders like Pablo Escobar. You say that the, the infiltration of that cartel actually started with a glass of champagne. Talk a little bit about that. Well, from the standpoint of the book, it did. From the standpoint of uh, of the reality of the case, it all started really with um, after getting through the schools and putting 18 months of preparation together to build my front. Um, my my front was that I was a, a mob connected money launderer, a corrupt businessman, um, with a presence primarily out of New York, but also out of Florida. Um, um, I was I had created a a fully verifiable, uh, different identity embedded in active businesses um, that included an investment company, a mortgage brokerage business. We had an air charter service with a private jet. We had uh, a jewelry chain with 70 locations on the East Coast and even a brokerage firm with a seat in the New York Stock Exchange. So I didn't have to be the very best undercover agent in the world in order to achieve what uh, what we later did. I think uh, being given the opportunity to 
invest time to do those things and to take the time to dot the I's and cross the T's, putting that together um, made a huge difference. Plus, I had two informants within one of the five crime families in New mm-hmm. York that uh, gave credibility to me on the street. But with respect to the uh, glass of champagne, um, that really came about, oh, four months into the uh, undercover operation. Um, I had my my profile, the fact that I there was this Mr. Big who was helping people to set up accounts behind the scenes who really didn't want to be known was pretty much put out by lower level um, informants and uh, undercover agents who were doing short term assignments um, ultimately the uh, a money broker um, from many in Colombia, money brokers are people who deal in drug money and buy and sell it um, around the world uh, he wanted to meet me so uh, we met at a uh, at an apartment in, in Tampa. Um, I suspected that, I mean, I knew he wanted to meet me badly and do business with me badly, so I knew we'd come to some terms of an agreement at the end of that meeting. So I brought a bottle of champagne with me, and, and, um, and at the end of our meeting, I opened it, and um, we toasted to our lifelong friendship and our lifelong business relationship that was going to uh, make us both very, very rich. It was his sales job of us uh, that ultimately enabled me to meet face-to-face with a lot of high-level people and to, in fact, then have them become unwittings and pass the word even further so that I ultimately was dealing with people who were direct reports to Pablo Escobar. My goodness. So did you, so so that's, uh, how high you got up in the in the um, the hierarchy of the organization? You didn't have one on one interaction or, or personal interaction with uh, Escobar or any of the other drug lords, but their direct reports for the most part. With respect to Escobar, I didn't have any direct contact. I, I did have direct contact with his, one of his principal consigliaries, a lawyer out of Medellin, uh, who to the rest of the world was a professor at the University of Medellin, a practicing lawyer. He dealt with the legislature. In reality, he was a mastermind of money laundering plans and a person who had so much authority within the cartel that he could decide on a given day who would live and who would die. Um, after um, uh, when, when the hunt was on for Pablo Escobar, searches were done at this gentleman's uh, Santiago Uribe's farm in, in uh, the area of Medellin and they recovered letters from Pablo Escobar, which he characteristically would um, put his fingerprint um, on the the bottom of the letter to verify that it was really him who wrote the letters, uh, thanking Uribe for his oversight of several assassinations, including some of judges in in uh, in Colombia. So uh, he then uh, Escobar's principal manager of routes, a fellow by the name of Gerardo Moncada. He managed about 60% of uh, Escobar's routes. Uh, He was my principal client. And in the United States, his group was responsible for the sale of what later produced roughly $20 million a month in eight different cities in the United States, so $160 million a month just from the U.S.-based sales. They, of course, had sales that would go through the European routes um, as well. Uh, Moncada, uh, unfortunately for him, was found by Escobar to be stealing Mm. some of uh, the money of the organization, especially at a time when Escobar was very intent on maintaining the non-extradition laws that then existed in Colombia. He did that by paying off uh, people in the legislature to keep those laws intact. Those were laws that were actually drafted by Santa, Santiago Uribe, the attorney that I dealt with. And um, when he discovered that uh, Moncada had stolen this money, uh, actually there was a house in Medellin, the entire basement was full of cash. And um, he summoned um, Moncada and Moncada's brother before him, uh, they were both hung by their feet. Their clothes were stripped off, and blowtorches were used to melt the skin off their bodies. So it oh was a horrific uh, death for Moncada, and really a watershed event um, for the forces against Pablo Escobar, because Moncada's wife um, and other family members organized a group called Los Pepes, people persecuted by Pablo. 
um, and they became a vigilante group that hunted down uh, members of the Medellin cartel and continually killed everyone they could find until they ultimately, with the help of um, intelligence community personnel and Colombian law enforcement and military, uh, to hunt down Lo Escobar and ultimately kill him. So um, the people that I dealt with were, were right at the top of the food chain. Coming up, more with Bob Mazur as he takes us underground into the world of money laundering for the cartels. And if I did it legitimately, I would have to go to my banker in Colombia who would deal with the central bank. And I have to turn over the Colombian pesos and then get dollars back. But what happens is I have to prepay taxes and tariffs and duties. And I lose more than 25%. As World Footprints continues. Hi, I'm Patricia Elsie from Mother's Restaurant, and I'm sitting here with the famous World Footprints radio people, Tanya and Ian, <laughs> and they love our cooking, and they're really enjoying the food. I love them, and I hope they come back again. Radio is an award-winning broadcast and leader in socially conscious travel. Hosts Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick bring you entertaining and informative interviews with well-known celebrities, newsmakers, authors, and industry professionals. From environmental leaders like Bobby Kennedy Jr. and David Rockefeller Jr. to conservationists like actress Stephanie Powers and director Ken Burns. Tune in to hear travel journalism at its best. Visit unique places from around the world and stop by the worldfootprints.com website for comprehensive travel information including special daily travel deals. Ensure C-O-E.com. Hi, I'm Callie Schultz from the great city of New Orleans and you're listening to World Footprints Radio. We can't wait to see you in New Orleans very soon. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Here's more of our conversation with Bob Mazur. I mean, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm visualizing, you know, some of these events, and it, honestly, it's, for me, I'm seeing this on a television screen or a big screen. It's so hard to grasp as somebody who doesn't live in that world, uh, thank God. It's it's very difficult to, to really appreciate the danger, you know, horrific events that, that you witnessed. Um, and it, it's just, it's so destructive to me, and I, it's a hard thing to really appreciate. Yeah, well, you, you say you can envision it on the, the big screen. We are in the process of, uh, I've sold actually just last month the uh, the uh, movie rights to the book uh, to a group that includes a director by the name of Brad Furman, whose one of his most recent movies released last year was The Lincoln Lawyer. And um, he and uh, a screenwriter, as well as the production company um, out of the UK that uh, has acquired the rights, are working uh, toward what they hope will be a, uh, a good screenplay that hopefully will be put together by this summer. And uh, we'll see whether or not it then springboards that into production, which is uh, is everyone's hope. Um, the amount of money that's involved from the sale of illegal drugs, you're, you're absolutely right, is phenomenal. Um, its best estimates are between 400 and 500 billion a year uh, globally. Most of that money is generated in the form of U.S. currency, um, because U.S. the U.S. dollar, both in the underworld and in the real world um, is the international currency of choice. Um, and and that is really what creates the opportunity for money brokers like I was and, and like the, the people I dealt with were um, who buy and sell uh, these tainted dollars. What these money brokers do around the world, black market money operators, and they exist in, in every corner of the world, um, 
they buy dollars principally from the drug traffickers of the world um, or people who might be involved in illegal arms dealing or uh, other types of illegal activity that create uh, revenue. And they sell those dollars to importers, importers legitimate, quote, legitimate importers that might that are in countries that do not have a U.S. dollar base because mm-hmm. if they're going to go to the market to buy things, they need dollars. So if I'm a Colombian importer and I want to buy uh, a, a freighter uh, load of uh, oil, a tanker load of oil, I can't go with Colombian pesos and buy it. I need to get dollars. And if I did it legitimately, I would have to go to my banker in Colombia who would deal with the central bank, and I have to turn over the Colombian pesos and then get dollars back. But what happens is I have to prepay taxes and tariffs and duties, and I lose more than 25%, generally speaking, of the value of my dollars. Ah, uh, so I'm, I'm starting to see now the correlation between your work uh, within the the cartel and the sting that led to the fall of BCCI, uh, Bank of Credit and Commerce International, is that is that what happened there, or is that what BCCI's role was to these people? BCCI was one of uh, several members of the black market money operating group that I participated in. Uh, they provided a service in opening accounts throughout the world and moving this money through uh, accounts established in offshore entities so that the beneficial owners of the money could never be identified. And they did that with a full knowledge that this money came from the sale of drug, uh, of drugs, illegal drugs. Um, my example is that I, I, we would get the, the dollars into the hands of the importers and charge them roughly 10, usually 10%. So they were going to save at least 15% or more of the value of their dollars by going to the black market to get get it exchanged. At the same time, we would take from them their local currency, and we would charge the drug traffickers as much as 15% for uh, taking their dollars and giving them local currencies. So on a, on a $1 million deal on volume, we would make 25% profit. Um, by buying from the drug traffickers the dollars, selling them to the importers, receiving the importer's local currency, and selling that to the drug traffickers. And and that is a type of uh, black money market operation that uh, is done all over the world, but in, in uh, North and South America, and at least as it relates to the drug trade in Latin America, it's called the black market peso exchange. And um, it, it is a marriage between the underworld and the legal world. Can you... Um talk about the the sting itself in 1987 i think it's such an interesting story that i'd love to share with our audience how what led to the sting how the sting was carried out and uh the um the fallout uh the aftermath of uh the arrest sure um for about two years during that time frame um i maintained this cover uh i began to work at lower levels with um, money brokers and, and and drug traffickers, but from behind the scenes. Uh, we had informants and lower-level uh, undercover agents who made mention that there was this Mr. Big who uh, was able to establish accounts for them, move money for them, but he didn't want to meet anybody, wanted to stay in the shadows, just wanted to, just wanted to make his money, and that was it. Um, that bait was dangled out there for probably six months, and then ultimately... Um, the money broker, uh, Gonzalo Mora, uh, wanted to meet me, and, and that was the meeting with the, the toast of champagne. But, but the conditions on which I agreed to launder money um, were different than the conditions that I think a lot of them were used to. My conditions were that, um, number one, I was a member of an Italian organized crime family, and that was my principal business. And so what I was doing in Latin America was testing the markets with the approval of my superiors to see just how lucrative it could be and whether or not we could capitalize on it. But at the same time, we recognized that large volumes of money in and money out is a red flag that can uh, can cause people in law enforcement to look at groups that do that because that, that's a, a red flag of, of money laundering. And I told them that we would have to, and in short order, uh, get an agreement 
from those who wanted money cleaned by me to leave a certain percentage of it in investments. And so we put that condition on it and initially. We did that really not just because we were hoping to be able to take investments, but we, that would force meetings between me and the beneficial owners of the money. And especially since the money broker was probably not going to be able to talk people into that. And that was the case. And I told them, well, listen, all you need to do is give me the opportunity. I need to meet them face-to-face and explain this to them. You don't have the ability to really do that. And that caused me to then slowly begin to meet people of greater and greater importance within the cartel. Well, I'd like to mention we do have a link to your book, The Infiltrator, on your guest page and certainly on this show page. And uh, I could go on talking to you uh, much longer uh, than we've had today, but I do thank you for spending some time with us today and just enlightening us about this issue about your sacrifice, your family sacrifice, and it really was a family sacrifice to uh, allow you to, um, or, you know, empower you, I guess, to... Um, to do the work that you did. So thank well, thank you. So you. And I tell you, the, the, the silver lining around the cloud is that I do believe that there are certain segments of the law enforcement community that that are are really focused on the important priorities of trying to deal with this problem. Um, the Drug Enforcement Administration has a special unit called the Special Operations Division, which operates out of Virginia and works closely with the military and the intelligence community, not just in the United States, but in, in many foreign nations. And they've done a, a considerable number of cases in the last three years or so. Um, probably one of the more recent ones your listeners should take the time to Google because it, it will give you uh, a bird's eye view of what's going on in the drug and money laundering world today. Um, all you need to Google is the last name of the lead defendant. His name is Juma, J-O-U-M-A-A, um, and put in money laundering. And you will find pleadings and diagrams and all types of information about a connection that exists between not just the Mexican and Colombian drug cartel leaders, but also with terrorist groups, including uh, uh, Al-Qaeda and uh, Hezbollah, who have now joined in forces, recognizing that this is a big money maker for them. Um, And their financing uh, of uh, drug activity, their involvement in drug activity, is with a sole purpose of gaining enough capital to be able to further their real goals, uh, which is the destruction of, of the Western world's way of living, um, and to kill Americans. So it's it's something that we all need to be very, very mindful of, um, especially those who, who fuel uh, this, this problem that I believe um, is fueled from the demand side of the drug problem, and, and that's the insatiable appetite within the United States for illegal drugs. We need to focus so much more on education and treatment um, in this country. And and we're going to need to do that for years before we can begin to hope to begin to uh, push the pendulum back in the other direction. Indeed. And, you know, I must say this is a different type of journey than we've ever taken our audience on. And and I appreciate what you've shared with us. And I appreciate you for educating us about this issue. And there's certainly a lot that we as average folks can be aware of and, and join in the, uh, the front line of this war. Thank you very much, Bob, for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Coming up, we'll take you on the front lines in the fight against human trafficking with survivor-turned-advocate Ronnie Hong. Many victims, uh, their lives are stolen. We, we, we know today through research that their identity is the first thing that is taken from them. And in my case, they they did take my identity, but they left me with my first name, Ronnie. Next is World Footprints Continues. Hey, this is Jay at the French Quarter Festival in New Orleans. You're listening to World Footprints. Hi, I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. A few years ago, we decided to leave our respective legal practices to live a more purposeful travel life and help others leave positive footprints. World Footprints was born and was quickly recognized for its award-winning journalism. We've covered events from the Olympics to a Titanic expedition, and we've discussed conservation, environmental, and public diplomacy initiatives. 
Join us for award-winning radio and visit our website, worldfootprints.com, for daily travel deals and comprehensive travel information. Don't have the time to give back to the community? No time to socialize or network? Then volunteer with OneBrick. Volunteer only when it fits your schedule, and then join us for food, drinks, and great conversation afterwards. It's a great way to meet new people, have fun, and help the community. Join us at www.onebrick.org. That's www.onebrick.org. One Brick, volunteering made easy. Hi, this is Johnny from New Orleans. Welcome, World Footprints, and come visit us in New Orleans sometime. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. More than three decades after India won freedom and independence from Great Britain, a little girl from the southern region of India was stolen from her family and became a slave. She was seven years old. She lost her home and her identity, but she kept only her first name, Rani. When Rani Hung lost her value to her slave owner, she was sold to an American woman who thought she was adopting an orphan. This adoption saved Rani's life, and today she has committed to being an advocate for the voiceless victims of human trafficking and a leader in the movement to end modern slavery. Rani, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be here as well. Now, you know, as a lot of our audience knows, and as we've shared with you, human trafficking is one of our signature issues, and we've had a lot of uh, activists on our show, uh, people who are in the fight against human trafficking. We've never spoken to a survivor, uh, and so I'm really happy to to meet you today. And I understand you're back in D.C. What bring Welcome, and what brings you back here? I have come here uh, for several meetings um, between D.C. and New York City. And it's just wonderful to be back here and specifically focusing on, um, you know, preventing this crime of human trafficking. Now, you have a different perspective from the people that we've interviewed in, in past. As I mentioned, you're a survivor. Take us through, allow our audience to see uh, the face, the, the gruesome face of human trafficking through your eyes. Take us through your story. Yeah. You know, as a survivor of human trafficking, um, I look at this industry, and it's just a huge, we know the numbers are humongous. Estimated 27 million slaves around the world today. That's a big number. But I happen to be one of those 27 million. I have a name, I have a face, and I'm just like others around us. Mm-hmm. So as for myself, as my personal story, you know, I was born in southern part of India, and at the age of seven, I was taken from my mother and sold into human trafficking. So my particular story, you know, is very, very common, very similar to the other stories that we know about. We know that children are taken uh, when there's poverty or when there's a lack of education in the villages. So in my particular case, my family wasn't educated. Uh, My dad was dying. And when somebody came and offered to take care of or help the family, My mother said, you know, just because I was going down the street, she allowed me to go down to this place and when she would come to visit me. But then one day when she did come back, um, said, where's my daughter? Where's my daughughter? And she was told that I I am gone and I will be back. Well, the reality of this crime, we know human trafficking, the crime itself is a hidden, right? In my case, this woman was just recruiting children off the streets of India. Finding vulnerability, looking for vulnerable parents mm-hmm. who may are not educated. And so in my case, she actually then sold me across the state border, and that is when my life began in the human trafficking ring. Now, I, I heard one interview with you, and you said that uh, when you were stolen, everything was stripped from you, and but the one thing you held on to was your first name. Is it a common practice within this this criminal industry to strip people from their identities? And if so, how did you manage to hold on to your first name at least? Yeah, as we know that many victims, uh, their lives are stolen. We, we, we know today through research that their identity is the first thing that is taken from them. And in my case, they they did take my identity, but they left 
me with my first name, Ronnie. But today, that name, Ronnie, we have currently uh, you know, Ronnie's Voice Campaign. But the name is significant because to me, that shows every victim out there has a name and has that face. And so, but often, the identities are taken from the victims. Passports are stolen. They're falsified. Visas are being um, taken and just, you know, kept in, kept away from the victim. So the victim loses their identity in this process. And we know no child, no victim should lose their identity by, an, by another person exploiting them for this trade. You remained in, in slavery and in, in captivity, essentially, for uh, about a year or so before you had actually, your ordeal in human trafficking ended with uh, an adoption by a, uh, an American woman. Now, your, your ending uh, actually ended on a more positive note than millions and millions of other, other people out there. But talk a little bit about that transition, how you ended up over here, and in how you, you've grown since, uh, since that adoption or how that transformed you. You know, what we know today through human trafficking, um, children, women, and men are enslaved. They're held against their wills. They're forced to do things they do not want to do. In my particular case, as I was in the trafficking ring, I became so um, it, it looked like I was physically and mentally ill. I did not look good, and they put me as destitute and dying. However, this is a business. Human trafficking is a business. We know it's a $32 billion industry. Mm-hmm. And that was the motivation for my own trafficker, saying, hey, we can make one more profit off of this child. Even though that child is not doesn't look too good, we can make one more profit. So at the age of eight, I was then sold for international adoption into the United States. And it, I, I know it was an illegal adoption, but it, it worked in your favor, and so you luckily didn't end up in the same situation or, or worse than, than what you left. You know, many victims are absolutely, I mean, I do have an happy ending now, but that gives us, there's a sense of hope. When we go rescue a child from slavery, rescue a child from human trafficking, we are giving them that freedom. So in my case, my adopted mother in disguise really was the one who did bring me my freedom. And that is how I got out of that trafficking. But again, my case is one out of millions of stories, and mine is a happy ending. But yet, there are thousands of stories that are tragic and are not with happy endings. As I sit here talking to you, I, I see a woman who is incredibly strong. Your voice is strong. And, but in some other interviews I've seen with you, I could hear the pain. Does that experience still haunt you? Yes, absolutely. The experience of, from what the victim has gone through, from myself, is something you cannot put away. You cannot forget about it. We try to keep it out of our minds. But it, this, the tragedy and the things that happened to us was really, there's a cost to this. What we're talking about, there is a cost to this human trafficking trade. In my case, the pain is, that is, comes often, right? Mm-hmm. But for me, I have a choice, how do I deal with that pain? And I've chosen to overcome that by becoming an advocate on this issue. And, you know, how, where did you get the strength from, though? Because a lot of people, when they go through trauma, you know, the best way that they know how to deal with it is just to close their eyes or, or, or go into a state of denial or, or just forget, put the past behind and never allow it to, to peer its ugly head again. Where did you get the strength to, to become a strong activist uh, for the, against this crime? You know, I need to give the credit to my adopted mother. She really was that one person that saved my life. And yet she taught me, once I came into the United States, she taught me what it was to have, to mean to have a strong character, to become a strong person, and to how to overcome obstacles. So I credit my um, healing quite a bit to my adopted mother as well as my faith. And when you combine the two things of faith, that you can overcome this and with a another person who's with you side by side to help you to get through the circumstances. 
And through that, I became this more strong woman and the ability, learned the ability to overcome. And it's a choice. Mm -hmm. It is a daily choice. And I have chosen on a daily basis when it's difficult to overcome this. Uh, bless you for for what you're doing. Now, you've uh, the one thing that I've noticed as a member of the media is that this issue is starting to gain more traction in the media. That you know, there's more attention being paid to it. I know you've appeared on Oprah. You've been on CNN as part of their uh, A-Test, um, the Freedom Project, um, and other major outlets. Is all of this publicity, in your opinion, is it helping at all? The more we report on this issue and bring it out to the public, bring it out of the darkness, I think that is that is a way that we're going to be able to fight this industry. So I applaud journalists such as yourself for the shows that you're doing. Continue to do these shows because it is through the shows, through the publicity, and through the TV coverages, radio coverages, blogs, new media. Mm-hmm. All those are the is the way forward for the future that we want when we want to stand in freedom. Indeed. You know, one of the, the frustrating things that we've run into as well is that when we talk to, to people about human trafficking, their perception, uh, immediate perception is that it's a third world issue, and it's not. This is a global epidemic, isn't it? It absolutely is. We know there's a global, this is a gro- global problem, and that's why there needs to be a global solution. So I, as a survivor of human trafficking, I'm here to make, to call out to the stakeholders. Let's join together. Again, the media, the NGOs, the government, law enforcement, and survivors, and others, we need to come together and saying, okay, as a team of a group of people, let's stand against this crime. And so today, 2012, it is encouraging for me that there is more coverage on this issue. Twelve years ago when I first told my story, people would just look at me saying, what is you talking about? What is human trafficking? And they, they did not know. Today I come and I talk to journalists and they, they know what human trafficking is. So I think we need to look at the, uh, the success that this industry in the terms of awareness, where we were in the past to where we are today, and there is a significant increase. However, there needs to be a lot more because this crime itself is just growing in numbers. Right. And and as you mentioned, you know, it's it's extensive thirty two billion dollar annual industry and I know in the D C area alone it's a hundred million dollar bill uh industry uh annually and I I can't comprehend that amount or for that type of uh of crime. If you were to issue a report card what countries would receive a passing grade and what countries would receive a failing grade in, in fighting this issue? Well, you know, this is the time to bring about um, some of the reports that are out there. We know from research, Stanford University did an incredible report um, on human trafficking. We can look at those. We can look at the TIP report, Trafficking in Persons report, that is, comes out every year in June. Those reports indicate the, the countries that are actually taking action against this crime. And we know the United States is one of the crimes that has human trafficking. However, we also are doing advocacy work. And right here it's being in the midst of D.C., right in the capital. Um, but our president is strong and saying that he's going to fight this crime, right? And so, but we need more stakeholders to come and carry their voice. And so as far as governments, there are a lot of good governments, governments that are doing good. I know the United Arab Emirates, as a country, that's now putting on an event coming up. So they're taking action. I know the country of India. There, I've met with the government of India, and I've met with the, the stakeholders and the leaders of that country, and they are taking active part, you know, as, as much as they can. So many countries are, but there are a lot of other countries that still need to do something about it. And we're going to hold those countries accountable. And that's why I partner with the the reports and the people who develop the reports and the teams that do to saying, okay, how are we going to keep the government accountable for their actions on this crime? After the break, Ronnie Hong shares how her Trani Foundation is raising global awareness and making leaders in the fight against human trafficking. I'm helping to lead 
of collective voices. I'm helping to lead, again, bringing together stakeholders. And so we do have a program um, our, called Global Awareness and Leadership Program. Next as World Footprints continues. Hi, this is Chantel from New Orleans. I love worldfootprintsradio.com. You guys rock. Are you planning a vacation, a business trip, or a honeymoon abroad? Want to enhance your trip and make a meaningful contribution to the places you visit? Packforapurpose.org can show you how. Before you travel, visit Packforapurpose.org. It's easy to make a big impact. Hi, this is Paul Harris from uh, Seven Oaks in England. We're once again here in New Orleans. I think it's my 35th or 40th, 40th time, and it's always a pleasure to come back. We always bring our, our musicians with us, and it's a great pleasure to uh, meet uh, our friends from World Footprints, and uh, wish you all the success with your show, and uh, looking forward to seeing you again sometime. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Here's more with Ronnie Hong. Now, I, I know as an attorney myself, one of the major barriers to fighting this crime is law enforcement. And, you know, it's different in different different regions of even this country, but certainly other other countries. Can you talk a little bit about uh, those, those barriers and some of the other barriers that are uh, preventing people, preventing uh, countries from, from fighting this crime more effectively? You know, when we look at the work of law enforcement, it is really, I mean, it's such a huge profit. I mean, if you can think of it, if there's 27 million slaves and victims of human trafficking, imagine the work that law enforcement has, right? The traffickers are probably double. I mean, there's a huge amount. So how do we combat such a huge problem? And we know the, one of the number one ways is exactly what we're doing is giving out prevention messages and raising awareness. So we know that, but for law enforcement in, in the other countries, there isn't there's a lack of funding. Mm-hmm. But that's not an excuse why not to punish the, the crime. Because I'm here to stand in the shoes of victims and asking and pleading with the world to become our to become a voice and an advocate on on our behalf. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, there are a lot of different needs in that in that quest. You know, I, I heard a comment by, I think, Mira Savino on one of um, uh, the CNN show, I believe, and she commented that she thinks that part of the, 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 the problem with law enforcement is that um, officers may not see human trafficking as a an attractive crime to fight. It's not sensationalized for them. It, there's, you know, not a lot of publicity involved with bringing down a, a trafficker. Would you agree with that? You know, what we know that, I mean, there is publicity on this issue. As you can turn on the TV stations and then listen to the radio stations, there are more uh, shows, you know, covering it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as far as the, you know, there needs to be continuing. It's not an easy task. This is not an easy task, and any one of us who are experts on this issue will be saying this thing, that this is, it takes an enormous amount of work. So we can't just point a finger on one, one group of people. However, we are here to keep the different groups and add different people accountable for the work. Mm-hmm. As law enforcement, this is a hidden crime. It's not easy to identify this, but if we give enough training on how to identify the victims, well, now we've given, empowered the law enforcement, we've given them the resources on what to look for. Then it is the responsibility of law enforcement mm-hmm. to be able to, um, to put that into action. And then once they identify the victim, then we need to get help for them. And that's where sometimes the challenges come in. I want to talk a little bit about your foundation, the Trowney Foundation, and it, it didn't hit me until today. You know, I couldn't figure out where you got the name Trowney from, and it, uh, it hit me today that it's a combination, a blending of yours and your husband's name, Trong, who's also a, a survivor of human trafficking. 
talk a little bit about your foundation. I know in, in the initiatives you have, you have a lot of initiatives to help educate and raise awareness. And there's one that I'm really interested in. I think it's your your youth leadership camp. Talk talk about those initiatives. Well, I am the executive director of my nonprofit organization, the Trani Foundation. And you are right; it is the, the name has come from that. Uh, my husband and myself, and because we're both survivors of this trade, we know this is a horrific crime, and we're doing everything we can to uh, prevent this from happening to another victim. Um, today, as an executive director of the foundation, I'm helping to lead a collective voices. I'm helping to lead, again, bringing together stakeholders. Mm-hmm. And so we do have a program um, our, called Global Awareness and Leadership Program. This is exactly what that means is we're going out there and being in conferences, being at forums, doing in media interviews, going traveling to some of the site, doing site visits and visiting other countries because we're seeing slavery at first hand even now today. And so as a foundation, we are, um, our mission is we're create, causing a global shift in consciousness and behavior by exposing the cost of slavery. And so our goal is to just bring this out in the public, make awareness, prevention, you know, but it's, awareness alone is not enough. We have to take action. And so as myself and as the organization, uh, we are taking action. And we have an empowerment program, uh, which is empowering survivors mm-hmm. to get their voice and, uh, and participation um, involved in all state, in all areas. So today, our program, the Empowerment Program, really is the key, I believe, to the lasting solution. Mm-hmm. Now, is a lot of your work, a lot of your work from what I've seen, uh, seems to be focused on India. Are you focusing on trafficking in your home country, or are you going global with your educational and uh, awareness and uh, other initiatives? You know, when I started my advocacy work uh, back in 1999, I did start in the country of India, as well as I work uh, quite a bit in the U.S. because I live in the United States. Um, so those are the two foremost two countries. But now today, as a special advisor to the United Nations Global Initiative to Fight Human Trafficking, that brings a whole new opportunity to be able to go and work with many countries. So through my uh, association and position as a special advisor, I am now currently working all over the world in many different countries, whether it's just the voice being heard in a different country through interviews or whether it's actually going to the country. Mm-hmm. Either way, I'm still advocating on behalf of millions of victims around the world. And uh, you know, I'd like to say we are partners with UN Gift, and, and that's, uh, I'm very pleased that we've met through, uh, through this uh, through the organization. Knowing that, you know, we've talked about uh, this being a global uh, issue, but is there a, a ground zero for human trafficking? Is there one country perhaps that, or, uh, you know, a region that, that's more prevalent um, in this crime? You know, um, we know, again, this crime is every single country it's affected by this crime. There is no one singular country that stands out among the rest. It is a crime that is hidden and is in every single country and all around the planet. And that's why the importance of the United Nations Global Initiative to Fight Human Trafficking, because what they're doing is they're bringing the stakeholders together. And we're not pointing the finger again at one particular country or one particular trafficker or one, because that will never be how we make we grow from right. this, right? That's not the way to solve the problem. The way to solve the problem is coming together as a group of people mm-hmm. and advocating. So I would like to just go back to the UN gift um, because they are the ones who have uh, put us together in this um, in this media interview. And, you know, again, we know that human trafficking is a violation of our human rights. We know that. We know that this crime, again, is the, the billions of dollars, location, is everywhere, and again, the estimated numbers are just estimate. Traffickers don't report the numbers, right? Mm-hmm. They do not report the number of victims they're holding in bondage. So we have to remember it is, an, again, an estimation. But United Nations Global Initiative to Fight Human Trafficking was established in 2007, mm-hmm. and since then they have been doing some work, and this is recently 
Um, you know, I just became a special advisor just about three, four months ago. But that's huge because now they realize and um, take into effect the voice of and participation right. of survivors. Right. So I do commend for UN Gift helping to take the lead um, in that, and that is the message we want to give to all to all partners. Mm-hmm. That how do because there is so much information that victims do have, and survivors now today are wanting to share that information in the hopes that they will prevent this from happening yeah. in the future. Now, you're you're a mom of four or five now. I have four kids. <laughs> you're so tiny, I can't believe that. <laughs> are you are you more hypersensitive now as a mother to to this issue than perhaps you 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 would have been otherwise? Absolutely. I think having um, you know having my a child, children of my own, I see them you know every day. I'm helping them. I have a my youngest at nine years old, mm-hmm. and I see a nine-year-old child. And when you truly look at the eyes of a child, you realize they're innocent. They don't know what this whole world's about, yet they're so eager uh, to go out and to be involved. But when I, as a mother, when I see a child at that, especially at that desperate age of um, just innocence, I said, somebody needs to stand on behalf of them. Yeah. Somebody, ha- we as adults have to advocate on behalf of these children. And we know in the country of India and other places around the world, half of the number, half of the violation is of the human trafficking trade are children. Mm-hmm. So as a mother, I have a special, I do, I do have a special heart. Um, and that is why I advocate so much. Because if I, if it was one of my children, I would do everything and anything to do to protect them. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm asking your audience to do. For those who are listening to my voice, I'm asking you, I'm pleading with you to become an advocate on this issue. Once you're informed, right now you have been informed on this show. Information is great, but there also needs to be the action. So I would like to encourage your audience to take action. One simple thing they can do is follow Ronnie's Voice. It's a Ronnie's Voice is a campaign that is being around the world to carry the message of the unheard voices. So for my uh, audience, you can go to ronniesvoice.org through the Trani Foundation as well and click like on Facebook or tweet about it. Mm-hmm. But that's one action that, you, that your audience can take right now, which takes three minutes. But and, and Ronnie is spelled R-A-N-I. It is R-A-N-I-S-V-O-I-C-E, Ronnie'sVoice.org. Um, so, um, so please do. But that's a, you know that seems like a very simple thing. But can you imagine if we can start posting where this voice is going? And can you imagine when we start seeing numbers of people? Because for advocacy, I, as a survivor, I need to see that people care about this issue. Mm-hmm. That it's not that not that they only care, but they're willing to take action. And this is just a simple way to say I do care, and I am going to join and this movement, mm-hmm. join this global movement by partnering together with UN Gift, partnering with myself, partnering with journalists. But one simple thing the audience can do is just use the social media to just show that you do care. And that is one way again is to like us on Facebook. TroniFoundation.org, Ronnie's Voice, and then also um, tweet about it. Tell people about it. Put a posting. Whatever that, whatever you can do, I ask you today on behalf of the millions of children to do something with what you have. Another potential could be donation. Mm-hmm. We know awareness takes money to create PSAs, to do messaging, to do this um, new media to do radio shows. It does take money. So I ask your audience as well to donate to this cause. They can donate through the Troni Foundation on the donation page. That's T-R-O-N-I-E foundation dot O-R-G. So that's one way. If you have $10, I mean, can you imagine if everyone in your audience could give $10 for me to be able to and my organization to be able to go spread this message? I still don't think it would be enough because this is a huge crime, but it would be a a great step. And we will have links to Trani Foundation. 
uh, to Ronnie's voice on the show page of this website and certainly on your uh, your guest profile page. So, Ronnie Hung, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for your bravery, for the time that you've taken to, to share the story, and really um, for the legacy of positive footprints you're leaving. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you want to learn more about human trafficking, or if you'd like more of World Footprints Radio, including our World Footprints Travel Report of the latest breaking travel news, visit worldfootprints.com. While there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. We'll see you on the air again real soon. And until then, we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best. The Sandy Best from Lake Louise. With Lake- lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.